y'all. Welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we discuss popular culture with a Black feminist anthropological lens. I'm Brendan, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Belty bonjour tout le monde. Just kidding. <laughs> this is Alyssa. <laughs> I also use she, her pronouns. And if you're wondering what I just said, I just said good morning, everyone, in Martinique and Creole, because I am recording from Martinique. Hey. Period. Period. <laughs> I arrived last week for a preliminary research trip, just trying to make some connections with people, which is next to impossible to do via email. I don't know what it is about folks here. They won't respond to your emails, no matter how much you try. But if you track them down and get them on the phone, they are super helpful. So I've traded in ambulance sirens for weed whackers. So if you hear it. that. <laughs> if you hear that in the background, that's what's happening. If you hear birds chirping, waves crashing, just, you know, let it let it relax you, lull you, you know, <laughs> into suggestiveness. <laughs> I I wish, man, I wish. I am jealous. Um honestly truly cuz I'm sitting in this Baltimore fall weather. Um I'm not wrapped up in the blanket that I was wrapped up in a few minutes ago that my grandma would be jealous of. She would be jealous of this blanket. Um, But I am so happy that things are moving for you. And I know that you've been anxious about starting your project and just getting the ball rolling. But I'm I'm so excited to see like what comes from this academically, what comes from it spiritually. I feel like the waves and the birds are healing. So... But before we, you know, (laughs) before we get a little too far off track, um, we wanted to talk about today's episode, which is all about afterlife, the plantation, futurity, the present, and the singularity that continues to shape the present, which is slavery. And we also wanted to take a pause in this moment to honor Dr. Stephen Gregory, who was a professor in our department who unexpectedly Mm -hmm. passed. Um, Stephen was an amazing scholar and mentor whose academic work and his personal support of students from undergraduate through graduate and beyond uh, created pathways for many Black students at Columbia. So thank you so much, Stephen, for your generosity, your kindness, your patience, and your presence. Let's also give a huge thank you to everyone who has donated to the podcast or engaged with us on Instagram and Twitter. We wouldn't be doing this without you. So if you would like to donate, please head to our website, zorasdaughters.com. We also love non-monetary support. So leave us a rating and review on on Apple Podcasts and follow us at Zora's Daughters on Instagram or Zora's underscore daughters on Twitter. Also, we really find that the way people hear about our podcast the most is actually through word of mouth. So please share our podcast with your friends, passive aggressively send an episode (laughs) to one of your workplace allies, (laughs) or just casually name drop us in everyday conversation. It would be much appreciated. For sure. And for those of you who have left a review, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Alyssa and I actually did a little... We had a little moment where we paused and read reviews and y'all are so affirming. So mm-hmm. just thank you. Um, we do see those, you know, uh, and we are just very appreciative. So with that, 
let's get into today's episode. Alyssa, what is the word for today? All right. Our word for today is afterlife. And we're not technically talking about what happens or where you go after death, although in some ways we are. We're talking about circumstances where scholars talk about the afterlives of some system or structure. It's the world or worlds to come. Right. And I do want to start a bit with religion because for those of you who don't know, I, during my youth, was in seminary school for a couple <laughs> of years. Um, so things tend to always start there for me. Um, but Brendan think- actually has like five degrees. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've lived multiple lives. I, <laughs> In true Gemini fashion, um, I think, though, that starting with religion and a religious understanding of afterlife might help ground this conversation. And so afterlife, for many of you who are familiar with Judeo-Christian teachings, refers to the place where your soul, which is defined as a distinct entity from your mind and your body, right, enters after physical death. And for Protestant Christians who adhere to the Bible, right, you believe that you only have two options, heaven, where God and Ronald Reagan is, or hell. Um, And whether we acknowledge it or not, Right? This logic structures how we think about the afterlife in secular spaces. Right? There's this assumption in the afterlife that the before, whatever the life, the before life was, has ended, and that the afterlife is a reward for however you lived in the before. So there's also this belief, right, that there's no going back once you've died, right? The death is the end. And so what I want us to do as we talk about afterlife, right, is to trouble this. Right, by thinking about indigenous, African, and other cultural teachings that describe death as an ending versus the end. And so in my opinion, it's easier to think about afterlife, as we'll talk about it today, if you recognize it along the lines of like reincarnation or even like ancestral influence or something akin to that. It's not just the remnants of the before that we atone for or live in the aftermath of, but also a continuation of it in some form. Interesting. So in our discipline, studies of the afterlife typically focused on different cultural burial and mourning practices. And anthropologists would travel the world to see how others physically die and how they are remembered by those who survive. And that knowledge was often used to other different cultures as primitive. And so our interest in the afterlife today or an afterlife is not focused on physical death and remembrance rituals, though that is important work. You know, like I said earlier, we're defining what folks might mean when they discuss the afterlife of a system or a structure. So afterlife literally means future life or life after death or the later parts of someone's life. And so the prefix after, and here's my little word nerd moment. (laughs) It stems from the old English word that means in imitation of. And so usually when people talk about the afterlife of something, for example, the afterlife of slavery, they're looking into all the ways that the event of the transatlantic slave trade continues. And so Black Studies scholars have examined the many afterlives of slavery in In the Wake, which we discussed in episode 13. Uh, Christina Sharp calls slavery, the Middle Passage, and all the violences therein a singularity a single point from which infinite possibilities arise. And this was all related to physics and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. you all have to listen to the episode if you want more on that. 
And so there's no concrete way to count how slavery has shaped the present, though the evidence of it is everywhere. And so you can learn more about what we're talking about. The episode is called The Climate is Anti-Blackness. Go check that right. out. You can pause, come back. It's all good. <laughs> all right. We'll still be here. Uh, <laughs> so Sharp is drawing heavily on Saidia Hartman's work, among others, to conceptualize how we live in the wake or in the afterlife of enslavement. And I know many of you would be very excited for us to do a run through of Saidia Hartman's entire body of work. I will tell you now, it is impossible um, yes, to do that. I, I think we have another year of the podcast before I feel, <laughs> where I feel like I can really enter. You no, know, it, it's <laughs> impossible. Um, we do not desire to do that kind of, you know, injustice to her work in our what's the word section by doing that. <laughs> oh but God. we will also just like give a brief overview of some of the key concepts of the afterlife of slavery uh, to ground our discussion today. So again, very brief. Um, she has an entire corpus of work for you to explore. Um, but we first encounter Hartman's theorization of what I would call the psychological, legal, libidinal, and social and sociological impacts of slavery in Scenes of Subjection, which was published in 1997. And in Scenes of Subjection, she reads the mundane violence of enslavement to highlight its true terror. And she also discusses how that terror persists today. So rather than look to these spectacular things like, you know, three enslaved people were whipped today and now blah, blah, blah. She reads these kind of more mundane moments that are usually gendered to, re- to render a theory of enslavement. Um, so she talks about slavery as not just being this horrific event that forcibly displaced and dispossessed millions of Africans and their descendants, right? Slavery literally changed the world, the way we see the world and the way we see and interact with each other. So Harmon also writes in an essay entitled The Time of Slavery, where she's relaying her experiences going back to... Um, the door of no return being at the slave castles in Ghana and the relationship to slavery over time, right? She writes, dispossession is in self an inheritance which tethers us to that event, which is slavery, right? Racial subjection, incarceration, impoverishment, and second-class citizenship. This is the legacy of slavery that still haunts us. So slavery left behind socioeconomic poverty, largely determined by race, Right? mass incarceration and surveillance, which is largely determined by race, inadequate schooling for students of color, right? poor living conditions in ghettos, reservations, and cities, and so much more. But I'm going to stop there because I know we're going to get into it later in the episode. Right. I would even say that slavery was transformed into those conditions, right? It's not like mm-hmm. the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. It more mm-hmm. so moved it to these these different sites, right? It kind of spatialized slavery in different ways and spatialized oh that that's related to our next segment (laughs) (laughs) so one of the ways uh, of thinking about the afterlife of an event is to think about its legacy and legacies are all the ways that we don't die all the ways that we remain there are many other afterlives that scholars study the afterlife of industrial capitalism the afterlife of shakespeare's sonnets the digital afterlife, the agricultural afterlife, the afterlife of the Cold War. <laughs> They're talking about different things than what we're talking you know, about. But 
you know, people talk about it. (laughs) And so all of these quote unquote, this is not a real thing. We're just calling it this as a gloss. Um, All of these afterlife studies, if you will, focus on what happens after the event. And so scholars might ask questions like, in what ways does that event's legacy persist? What has changed? How does naming this time as the afterlife of X event mark progress? What does progress mean if the legacy of that event is violent to marginalized people? What does this mean for the future? Some may believe that the future is overdetermined by the past and its afterlives, which means they are inescapable, but that may not be the case all the time. And so while legacies, afterlives, and futures are intertwined, afterlives do not necessarily predetermine the future. And I think that is, again, an excellent segue Mm -hmm. into our next segment, what we're reading. Brendan, what are we reading today? We are reading Plantation Futures by Catherine McKittrick, who actually visited our department. Um, So, hey, hopefully when you hear this, hey, girl. Um, (laughs) uh, Catherine McKittrick is professor in gender studies with joint appointments in cultural studies and geography at Queen's University in Canada. She received her PhD in women's studies at York University. Her writing centers Black life as empirical, experiential, spatial, and analytical processes, while also drawing attention to how Black creative texts are expressive of anti-colonial politics. These themes are addressed in her books, Demonic Grounds, Black Women and the Cartographies of Struggle, and Dear Science and Other Stories, as well as her edited volume and contribution to the book, Sylvia Winter on Being Human as Praxis. Her research has explored the works of Sylvia Winter, Toni Morrison, Bell Hooks, Robbie McCauley, M. Norbees Phillip, Willie Bester, Nas, Octavia Butler, Jimi Hendrix, Drexia, Edward Glissant, and Dion Brand. The essay we're reading today, again entitled Plantation Futures, was published in 2013 in the journal Small Acts. Yes, I also went to York for my master's, so Period. I'm even more delighted to be reading this essay, which also, of course, was on my exam list. In this essay, McKittrick draws attention to the ways the past configurations of the plantation tracks, quote, toward the prison and the impoverished and destroyed city sectors, and consequently, brings into sharp focus the ways the plantation is an ongoing locus of anti-Black violence and death. Put simply, the plantation racially and economically structured the future, which is our present, And so she draws on Sylvia Winter and Dion Brand to show how the plantation, as a site of oppression and resistance, gives us the opportunity to reimagine or envision a decolonial future. She demonstrates that because the plantation is still with us, it simultaneously holds the history of racial violence and the key to possibilities for Black life. You know, this essay was also on my exam list. Uh, I thought it was very cool of to come course. back to it and like see my old distress margin notes from like when I had to write my exam. Same. My I was reading it on the plane and people were probably like, it already has highlights and has chicken scratch all over it. Why is she reading it again? You know, it was like, you always got to come back to things. You always see something different, something new. Um, That's true. And that there's a lesson in that too for the baby scholars. You're always going to come back to stuff. Um, but anyway back to the subject at hand. (laughs) 
McKittrick begins with the African burial ground in New York City, which we talked about in episode 15 at about 16 minutes, right? To think about the way that the city, which is a space that is not traditionally thought of as a site of slavery or the plantation, actually opens up a spatial continuity between the living and the dead, between science and storytelling, and between past and present. And that was a direct quote. The presence of this burial ground in downtown Manhattan tells us in a material and symbolic sense of the ways both plantation logics and modes of survival are still with us. She asks, if the plantation, at least in part, ushered in how and where we live now and thus contributes to the racial contours of uneven geographies, how might we give it a different future? It's really interesting. I think I think that there's something hopeful, although, I mean, I know that there are scholars who have troubled the idea of hope, but, mm. um, you know, there's something hopeful or maybe optimistic about this formulation. But it also made me wonder, is there a danger in saying, hey, this site of, of anti-Black violence is also responsible for the things that are special about us as a group? Mm. You know, it seems like it could be turned around to support those... Of course, you know, wonderful, the wonderful white supremacist fantasies about how Africans needed to be enslaved so they could be civilized and things like that, you know. So I think the question that I was thinking about while I was rereading this was, you know, what are the stakes of insisting that plantation geographies have a role in imagining possibilities for life, right? It seems to imply that what oppresses us also frees us or can free us and I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> right. It's, I mean, it's not a dialectic because I feel like people overuse that word, but it's definitely <laughs> a, like a paradox of some, yeah. some sort. And Which, I mean, I think is kind of one of the things that is emblematic of blackness too, right? Is, mm-hmm. is this paradox. I absolutely agree. And that was also one of the thoughts that I had about this kind of hopeful, as you say, our optimistic formulation. And I think coming back to it this time, older and less stressed, I'm like, oh, this is actually kind of hopeful. This is very interesting. Um, And it kind of reminded me of when my childhood pastor was like, thank God for slavery, because without it, we wouldn't have Jesus. No. And, you know, as a child, (laughs) you know, it's like, uh, you know, um, as a child, I couldn't understand at the time what disturbed me about it but now as an adult I definitely know what was so disturbing about it for me um and I would say for my pastor right it was like the silver lining of slavery was that she could now go to heaven which I'm sure was not unlike the beliefs of our ancestors right who were like you know damn I'm doing this but at least I'm gonna get a good reward at the end back to that afterlife I mentioned earlier right but I think kind of a not similarly, but along those lines, right? What McKittrick is pushing us to do here is to hold the truth that slavery was unimaginably violent. But in that violence, enslaved African people and their descendants still lived. So it's not that enslavement totally eclipsed all possibilities for life, right? There was still joy. There was still happiness, resistance in slavery, right? It just determined the constraints of those possibilities, and so I read this as McKittrick's way of saying, don't put me in the camp of people who think blackness is all about death, honey. I'm, I believe in life over here, <laughs> which there is a camp, right, um, mm. people. Um, but again, I think for me, the question is, right, like, what is life in confinement and how is that better and or different than death? 
Right. And I think that this formulation is actually so much more nuanced than the whole like resistance and resilience um, mm -hmm. kind of ideas that, that come out of a lot of <laughs> certain scholars study studies mm -hmm. of, of slavery and the plantation and things like that. So definitely, let's just say this, is, this isn't a critique, more just thoughts that I, you know, that I had. But what I'm really excited to talk about is the section of the essay entitled Uninhabitable. This was the one that kind of like blew my blew my mind. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then just as a little side note, we're going to be talking about in this section, she talks about the capital M man. And so if you haven't read Sylvia Winter's 82, is it 82 or 62? I don't know. It's a very long paper. <laughs> long as sale. But, but super, super informative. Um, if you haven't read Unsettling the Coloniality of Being, Power, Truth, Freedom, and there's a longer title to it, but, you know, or if you haven't listened to episode 13 of our podcast around minute 11, we explain a little bit more about the capital M man. Man refers to the kind of human that has personhood. So it's the kind of human from which the subject of the black is excluded. And so when I say man, or if, you know, if we say it today or in other episodes, just think the fullest version of humanity. So in this section, McKittrick talks about the way that colonial imaginative geographies were cast onto the people who lived in those spaces. And those people are the damned of the earth in two ways. And let me just say that this part of the essay really had me thinking of France Fanon and the wretched of the earth and how in French it's mm. les damnés de la terre. And, you know, you could also call it like the damned of the earth, right? But people trans is translated as the wretched. You probably got Christianified, you know. <laughs> so yes, those people are the damned of the earth in two ways. One, they are geographically segregated. So for example, the way that we refer to the global south and all of the connotations that come along with it. And then they are condemned to otherness, right? So they're excluded from the category of man. And these ideas about the geography become bound and projected onto the people who inhabit those places. So Europeans believed that Africa and the Americas were geologically newer than Europe. And so mm. the people must be underdeveloped as well. Their ideas, their thought process, processes, their rituals, all those kinds of things, they were primitive and underdeveloped. And so similarly, there were descriptions about the Caribbean islands, you know, here I am in one, you know, they're being wild and untamed. And so the indigenous peoples who inhabited those, pla those places must be too. So they needed to be mm. civilized. That's the discourse, not my opinion or idea. <laughs> <laughs> and so the thought process there is that to survive in such barbaric, for example, barbaric conditions precludes humanity. Nobody civilized could live in a place like that. Mm. And so she writes... Quote, in our present moment, some live in the unlivable, and to live in the unlivable condemns the geographies of marginalized to death over and over again. Those who have lived outside what is considered normal and those who continue to inhabit the uninhabitable are so perversely outside the Western bourgeois conception of what it means to be human that their geographies are rendered or come to be inhuman, dead, and dying, end quote. And so I think this point will become important in our next segment. So hold on to that one. Jot that down. <laughs> um, it's so interesting. It's like 
because the way that the Caribbean is, is for, well, certain places in the Caribbean are framed now as like places where you relax and let go and be, and you know, the whole tourist vibe of things, which to me means that to be civilized means to suffer. But, you know, um, I digress, <laughs> digress. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting. And what I also find interesting in this section right, is to think about the ways that land and geography become ways to kind of naturalize differences among different races of people. And so we can also think about the way that this happens in reverse, right? So when Black people move into a neighborhood that used to be all white, right, property values tend to decrease. And it's in this way that these colonial logics are maintained, right? Black geographies are emptied of life and Blackness kind of sucks the life out of particular spaces. But what this does is allow that any space that's inhabited by Black people or those who are racialized as Black to become uninhabitable and therefore colonizable. I know that's a little twisted logic. It's a little twisted, but I'm going to explain. No, no one, right? no so, one ever said white supremacy was <laughs> was anything but untwisted. <laughs> you know, it's 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 the people who invent rationality who have the irrational things, but. You know, yeah, they make. I think some, uh, <laughs> some logical leaps, for sure. Some logical leaps were made, um, <laughs> but it is through this process, right, where you say, "Look, this is where the black people are at. Nobody should live here. No human should live here. So we're going to extract them, right, and then extract the resources from that place." Um, and that is the process that made the plantation possible. But what's also fucked up about this, right? As I've said, is that while black spaces are deemed uninhabitable, they are also the sites of the extraction of extreme wealth, cultural capital, and labor. So I remember being in a class with Saidiya Hartman where she called it negative extraction. And I'm not sure if that's her term or if she pulled it from somewhere else. But there's this belief, right, that somehow blackness is nothing, but anti-black systems are literally able to extract everything from blackness. So if we think about this in like mm-hmm. gentrification cycles, right, where we have white people that inhabit a space, black people come because they're working there, they they live there, etc. White people flee, decay sets in, but it's still cool, right? So white people come back to bring back value or restore safety, whatever they say, right? They come back to the place. And then it becomes a place of extreme value where there used to be none, right? It used to be the place you avoid. And this is based on this kind of geological or geographical, excuse me, construction of the inhabitable. I mean, Harlem is such such a good example mm-hmm. of that, right? Like, that's where, when I'm not here, <laughs> I'm, God, y'all, I'm still excited about being here. You don't even understand. I, look, I'm, um, <laughs> I'm trying to teleport. <laughs> but it is... I mean, Harlem is a, a really good example of that. It actually used to be inhabited by poor whites. Mm. Black folks moved in. Of course, it was, you know, then the site of the Harlem Renaissance. It was just black people living here. No one, no one cared. No one visited. Right. No one came here for, for tourism or anything. And now white people are moving back in or are moving in, I should say, because it's not really the same. <laughs> the same, but. Yeah, they're taking tours to show like, oh, this is where the black people used to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like walked up on a group taking a tour one time and I was just like, 
Do I hit you with my umbrella or do I? (laughs) Oh, wait. (laughs) Um, I didn't hit anyone. I I didn't hit anybody. That's good. (laughs) That's a good start. I think, and of course, you know, we can, we can mention and we won't get into it today, but you know, one of the things we can talk about is how Columbia is complicit, has been complicit Mm -hmm. in this gentrification process um, of Harlem. Which was Stephen Gregory's last um, book. Yeah. Um, But one thing I did want to add to what you were saying earlier is that part of the way, and this is again based on these, you know, European philosophical um, logics, one way that land has value or um, procures value is through labor, right? That's like John Mm -hmm. Locke's whole idea, right? And so why is it that, or what I should say is that when, when these like white explorers, we'll say, came upon the, the new world, you know, when they quote unquote discovered the Americas, <laughs> <laughs> they were like, oh, this place has not been cultivated. It hasn't been civilized. Everything is just running wild. So these people have not labored. Um, they've not performed any labor to make this, this land valuable. And that was one of the things that also made it colonizable, right? Mm. So that is that is something to think about in the way that like value is given through labor, cultivation of the land and things like that, which is something I'm working on in my in my own project. Period. In terms oh, of in terms of like thinking up. about in terms of thinking about identity and, you know, how people come to be from a place that they were imported to let's say anyhow <laughs> my multiple asides Lots um, to say. <laughs> yes finally finally we're like in my wheelhouse you know I feel good mm-hmm. about it <laughs> <laughs> but of course she's not the first to discuss the mutual construction of place and identity Edward Said has a chapter in orientalism titled imaginative geography and its representations so some other texts that came to mind and that you all can check out, and it's definitely going to demonstrate my regional bias, um, but they deal with this more, deal with this um, question more extensively. You can check out Consuming the Caribbean by Mimi Scheller, uh, Paradise Destroyed, Catastrophe and Citizenship in the French Caribbean by Christopher Church, which is a super interesting book about how citizenship was denied to people in the French Caribbean because of all of their, like, "Quote unquote natural disasters, and the way that like the the islands could not be civilized, and so they couldn't be French. The people living there could not be French in the same ways as people on on the mainland. And then also Catherine Yusoff's book, uh, A Billion Black Anthropocenes or None, also speaks to the geological. There is so much work on this, y'all. I will not pretend to be an expert." Um. <laughs> Um, my expertise is more in like the U.S. city construction, but yes, yeah, so much work. And what McKittrick explains is that the inception of the plantation, which she talks about, basically how it was an early model for contemporary urban life. So it, the plantation was connected to transportation networks for moving bodies and commodities, right? Most well-off plantations were connected to rivers or small creeks where they could move goods easily. They had sites of commerce, which were places like the slave auction block. 
places of residence, which were where the enslaved stayed, as well as um, other members of the plantation, right? And also a way for forced laborers to feed themselves. Uh, so in addition to whatever rations they would receive from what they grew um, in order to prop up the economy of the U.S. and beyond, right? They also, many slaves also had their own separate plot where they grew their own food, like yam. Um, yam is the biggest one, right? that I can think of right now. So that actually brings us nicely into McKittrick's discussion of Sylvia Winter's 1971 essay, which is Novel and History, Plot and Plantation. I bet y'all didn't know that novels and plantations are connected. Um, Mm, And mm. Winter actually (laughs) makes that connection. It's it's a six-page essay. I think it's six pages or so. Mm -hmm. But it is thick. It is dense. So take your time with it. Read it multiple times. <laughs> and But it's like, it's definitely illuminating. Mm-hmm. Um, for winter, right, the plot, which is a small garden where the enslaved were able to cultivate their own food, was a site of Black resistance and creativity that existed within the plantation. And so the plot also refers to, for those of you who remember high school English, right, the plot is also what happens in a novel, right, or in fictional books. And both of these things actually arose at the same time, right? Because a lot of novels were set in plantations. So before the novel, most books were related to the Bible (laughs) in some way. So they had this more of a, like a nonfiction kind of thing, but the novel really rose with the plantation. So if you think about it, right, plot actually has a double meaning. And McKittrick wants to point our attention to the ways that secretive histories can be found in the plots. So secretive histories is uh, Winter's word for kind of the history of the plot and kind of the secretive, um, I guess I'll call it the secrets that are kept from us about the ways that people resisted during slavery. And so both plots on the plantation and in the novel create the space for things that would be considered inconceivable during slavery, which are storytelling and survival. Um, Both plots on the plantation and in the novel create the spaces for things that would be considered inconceivable during slavery, storytelling and survival, right, which happens on physical and cultural levels. And if we bring in the African burial ground as another kind of plot in the secretive history, We can see another place where African religious or funerary practices were maintained. And so these secretive histories that Winter also argues this, right, that these secretive histories also lay the groundwork for conceptualization of African indigeneity. But that's a hot topic and uh, we won't go too deep into that here. (laughs) Not today, not today, but yes. (laughs) So there's a way in which the enslaved seizes spatial sites to make a life outside the plantation. Because also the plots were not just for feeding themselves, but they also did use some of some of what they grew to sell, um, to earn money. Some people mm-hmm. used that money to purchase their freedom. And so the plot is figuratively fertile ground for the creative and geographic plotting and plot living that produce plantation futures. And so our present is the consequence of the plot and the plantation a dichotomy that parallels creativity and survival and violence and domination, all of which created the conditions of possibility for Black people in the Americas in the present. Which I think brings us nicely to the final section of the essay, 
which is named after the title of um, the essay itself, Plantation Futures, where McKittrick discusses Dion Brand's long poem, Inventory. And in this poem, Brand describes and recounts racial violence and death across many continents uh, that are connected through this kind of stream of anti-Black violence. Her recounting is an inventory of death and dying that pushes us to notice how we might have normalized counting bodies, and particularly in the city and in other urban environments. So McKittrick argues that this poem exemplifies a decolonial poetics that demands we engage in ethically in the necropolitics of our world. So if you want to learn more about necropolitics in episode six, Deathcraft Country, around minute 16. So we do our what's the word? Um, and fundamentally, right, we must use this knowledge of the past right, that is rooted in anti-Black violence of the plantation to transform our geographic practices and envision an alter- alternative future. So if the plantation got us here, right, its secretive histories can get us elsewhere. And I think I left the essay with the question of where is the elsewhere, right? Where exactly does this take us um, if we're thinking about these secretive histories and plots that still fall within the legacy of the plantation, right? Um, what are the possibilities for marunage, a maroon afterlife, right? Or is that also included in this kind of plantation afterlife? What is what is the literature? I know that there's, I know the literature on marunage in kind of the Caribbean, but what is it in the U.S. North American context? Because I think I think I tend to hear fugitivity more than marinage. Yeah. And I wonder, I don't really know how to answer this question. I can only conjecture. Because I know in South Carolina, like part of the Gullah Geechee, insert word here, is that basically they were able to live in a place where white people could not live. So they were less surveilled. And so they were able to preserve a lot more of that um, indigenous African language because mm. they were not surveilled as heavily. So it was like a borderline kind of maroon thing and i wonder if the fugitive thing comes is connected to the policing and surveillance Mm. versus like it was a lot harder to police people in the caribbean and in south america than it is in the u.s or at least the policing looked very different Mm. um on plantations but i don't know if y'all know let us know (laughs) yeah definitely let us know i think um you know that that situation right there that question of like fugitivity versus maronage, it demonstrates that she's really thinking with, you know, the the Anglophone, um, mm-hmm. like the Anglophone plantation, the North American plantation. And then I think that this essay would look differently if it was someone who was working with like the French Caribbean, Spanish Caribbean. Ooh, I'm losing my words, <laughs> y'all. <laughs> um, so I wonder how this how this essay or this idea of the of the plantation future or, you know, as you were talking about the afterlife of Marinage, you know, how that would look with someone with a different geographic specialty, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, thinking back on what I was saying earlier about about this optimism is I, you know, I read this essay with, with a working group and uh, Marissa Solomon, who is a professor at Barnard, you know, she said, what she said is that it really shows that capitalism sows the seeds of its own undoing. And I thought that was mm. really powerful. Is maybe we shouldn't be thinking about it as like, on the one hand, there was oppression, and then on the other hand, there was resistance. But actually, 
the fact that the plantation had the plots in order to reduce the burden on the enslaver and on the slaver, that actually was one of the things that led to our resistance and our survival. And so mm. that, that in the end is what undid the plantation. Yeah. Hmm. Something to think about. <laughs> Something to think about, right? Um, I mean, as we sustain ourselves, right? That in some circles, right? People preach that sustaining yourself is pushing back against this system. So that's one way yeah. to think about it. And I think like capitalism is becoming undone right before our eyes, even as it continuously tries to remake itself, mm-hmm. which I think leads us to our next segment, which is what? What? <laughs> what in the world what? is going on? What in the world? What's going on? What's wrong? <sighs> All right. I, okay. <laughs> All right. So I feel like we can't talk about the plantation without talking about the concept of the plantation ocene. Mm. You know, I think it's, I can't believe I'm about to do this. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, you know, the plantation ocene, it has picked up a lot of traction. It has gained, you know, it's been gaining popularity, particularly in the environmental space, environmental humanities. Mm. And so it's essentially the idea that our current environmental crisis is rooted in the logics of historical plantations. And so it was coined Mm. at a panel that Donna Haraway and Anna Singh were on. And so it's supposed to be an alternative frame for thinking about the Anthropocene, which we discussed in episode four. So they published the transcript of the panel um, that they were on. I think it's in, I want to say Environmental Humanities. I might be wrong. That was the name of the journal. But so they published the transcript and I read it because everyone was like, you have to, you know, you should engage a little bit with the plantation ocene uh, literature. <sighs> I was very unsettled by this transcript. <laughs> I, already, I already have a feeling about where this is going. <laughs> you said environmental studies and I was like, I heard you. So, heard yes. <laughs> <laughs> so particularly when Nobru Ishikawa, who is a, an anthropologist, uh, I believe the University of Kyoto, he said, quote, to me, plantations are just the slavery of plants, end quote. Mm. <laughs> now, mm-hmm. Anna Singh agreed, and then Donna Haraway added, and microbes. I mean, that's one way to be scientific about it, but... <laughs> I was like, um... Like, I I was shaken. And I'm also not the... I'm, I'm definitely not the first to notice that. Um, I remember... Probably earlier this year, um, Catherine, Mc- Catherine McKittrick also tweeted about it. She was like, <laughs> how has no one talked about this, right? Um, and so I went to this Plantation Ocene conference earlier this year. It was online, y'all. Don't worry not. And just the literature <laughs> that has grown up around the concept, for the most part, does not really engage with Black studies, Caribbean scholarship on the plantation. And it's like, how though? How? You know? How? Make it make sense. And so instead, it it does this kind of multi-species ontology thing where the labor of the unfree basically gets flattened and elided into just one of the many life forms that were exploited, you know, enslaved on the plantation, right? Oh, my God. And so it's like, okay, well, yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> just leave it there. Or that so there that is that's one way, that's one direction that the plantation of scene work goes. But then there's also, you know, more about the ways that plantations operated in a particular country. So there's like a regional difference. Um or, you know, there's the questions about how plantations have made a quote unquote return, which is interesting because as we just saw, the plantation and its logics have never left us and have changed the world, um, the world as we know it. And so there's this, I mean, there's this one talk at the conference about how the plantation in this particular country, it didn't endure materially, but it did symbolically. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, Say more. We, Say more about that. We know this. Um, and so I just, I I don't know. I hate to say it, but like the the plantation and plantation studies, it's been Columbused. I haven't. Quite. We, quite literally. People haven't. Um, I, and, I know. People haven't talked about Columbusing in so long, but like. <laughs> this, this is it. You know, I mean. <laughs> The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, or whatever Jesus said. Like, I, it's so interesting to me when bacteria and fungi and viruses, and that might be a sensitive word now, um, are mentioned before people. That's unfortunate but also very typical again environmental studies this is a constant constant issue environmental studies and kind of this and the and in some you know in many ways the multi-species turn um mm-hmm. and look we're not the first to say this or address this so i am a little bit fearing for my life <laughs> <laughs> in saying all of you this but <laughs> but i mean you know even um habeas viscous that is something where you know he's talking about the human the more than human Mm -hmm. the less than human right and so this whole like human non-human turn and all of these dichotomies and things like that still don't encapsulate blackness like they still manage Mm -hmm. to elide the subject of the black so definitely not the first to say this but I'm just like why are we not? And we won't be the last talking about we it more. <laughs> <laughs> and so, actually, in our, I mean, you know, speaking of the other people who have critiqued this formulation, in our episode Basura on Fuego, or sorry, the world is Basura on Fuego. Uh, that was episode four, I believe. Yes, that's what I said earlier. We read Axel Carrera's essay that critiques the conceptualization of the Anthropocene. There's also a really good essay called Anthropocene, Capitalocene, Plantationocene, question mark, a manifesto for ecological justice in an age of global crises. And that essay does a really good job of unpacking the way that this Plantationocene scholarship is empty, essentially, without its engagement with Black geographic and ecological work, and particularly in the way that um, Black folks have been making kin and plotting this is not, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not new. And we just want y'all to know that. Um, my three Jagathason, she also published in a paper this year. Um, it's called Black Feminist Plots Before the Plantation Ocene and Anthropology's Regional Closets. And that one is, um, that's an essay that calls out the erasure of Black feminist work in plantation studies. And she shows how it is possible 
to think across regions without doing that. Right, because people seem to think that if it's black, it's not universal. Mm. So can only be hinted at or put into a footnote without actually citing the scholars. Um, if the footnote is there at mm-hmm. all, which no, no tea, no shade, but <laughs> we tired of that. You know, we tired. Um, I wanted to go back to what you flagged earlier, though, about the ways geographies are rendered inhuman and living in those unlivable places makes you deserving of death and the conditions that cause it as a way to help us think about border control agents and how they are on horseback whipping. Um, And again, I know there's a whole useless debate about whether the whips are real or not, um, which is beside the point. Whipping is an action. It's not a tool um <laughs> that they're whipping Haitians who are here seeking asylum yeah I mean the whole th- those are not whips they're holding the reins it doesn't matter it doesn't matter uh, so how you hold the how does the rain have a different color and shape okay you know what the thing but, that's holding that's on the horse but like mm-hmm. I mean I think it's interesting that the fascination and the attention becomes the whip, Mm -hmm. right? It becomes the whip. It becomes the event, but not actually the underlying structures that are causing these issues. Mm -hmm. Like people are always like, people are always super focused on the event, which only became an event because something happened that Biden did not expect, which was not the fact that these people were, that these border patrol agents were rounding up and deporting Haitians. That was totally in his plan. What he didn't expect to happen was that it would be caught on camera. Mm-hmm. And so that is the reason that it is an event. But this has been going on for a while, right? Mm. And it's like, not just in this instance, on that day, right? It's like there is an entire history of the mistreatment of Haitians in the past mm-hmm. throughout history. That has carried has, that has been carried into our present, right? And particularly by America. And so, I just I really want to say plainly, the only thing about the situation that wasn't supposed to happen was it being photographed. And so Edwige Dantica, she is a, a, a Haitian um, author. She wrote an essay for The New Yorker. And so she explained that the U.S. Embassy in Haiti tweeted a message from President Biden. It was even written, <laughs> translated into Haitian Creole. Mm-hmm. And it said, mm-hmm. I can say quite clearly, don't come. Well. Yeah. Mm. So this was hmm. this was their plan, right? Like this this has been going on since the time of Trump, instigated by Obama. But I'll talk about that a little bit later. And now they're trying to make Guantan they're trying to make Guantanamo Bay a migrant holding facility. Hmm. So in addition to it being a torture ta- chamber. Mm-hmm. Okay. And right. and what's so- interesting is that Guantanamo Bay actually originally held Haitian migrants after the fall, after one of the many falls instigated by the US, of course, of the Haitian government. And there were again a lot of people fleeing the country. They held them in Guantanamo Bay, and then it became what it did. 
following the war on terrorism. So again, we're seeing these mm. repetitions, right? These repetitions, wow. these these afterlives, um, mm-hmm. and the way the that backlash, lashing back, exactly, and the way that like <laughs> history folds in on itself, and mm. you know continues into our present and our future. Mm. This is real life. This is real life. He was like, are you kidding me? No, this is like literally real life. Um, I think the photographs were definitely intentional. Like someone was like, we need to capture, like someone says we need to capture this moment, but I don't think the the mass circulation was. Um, Like maybe them becoming a public knowledge was not necessarily intentional, but I do think that the taking of them were. Like Mm -hmm. I think of it as like the descendant of like the lynching picnic postcard, which was definitely meant to be circulated. Or like a cousin to the police killing video, um, if you will. And these photographs serve as a visual reminder of the myriad ways that slavery comes to us again and again, which I'm going to pause here and say, please, I know you all, some of you are doing it with good intentions, but stop sharing these images of these Haitian people getting whipped. Um, And maybe it'll help Y'all understand why I say that if I break it down like this, right? Seeing Black people get brutalized and are murdered is actually pleasurable for the people who want to do that but can't. Or people who want to do that and are doing it, right? It does not incite empathy, true outrage, or change. Um, It actually reaffirms the racial hierarchies that place us at the bottom of this kind of like as the always already dead or dying. And so all they did when they saw the tweet storms and the pictures um, about the whips and the whippings, right, was they they just took the whips away and they took the horses away. Temporarily. um, Temporarily. It's temporarily suspended. (laughs) They would actually rather remove inanimate objects and horses from the violence, right, than actually give Haitians peaceful asylum. And I think we need to sit with that. Or actually go and provide aid and proper aid not where you create a cholera epidemic or where you take control of their gold reserves <laughs> like you know hmm. destabilize governments oh. right even this whole entire idea of borders and border patrol right in their most modern sense stemmed from plantation logics right one had to mark where and when the enslaved would be free And then that border had to be heavily patrolled in order to keep the captive captive. So as you were saying, right, ain't nothing new. Mm -hmm. It ain't nothing new. One of the reasons it's, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't really, (laughs) it doesn't incite empathy or outrage or change is because people care more about microbes and plants. (laughs) Literally. There isn't, and I mean, this is going to, we're also going to talk about this later, but it's, it's one of the ways that white people cannot relate to us. They don't see themselves in us. So sharing those images, it don't do shit. That's all I'm going to say. Actually, and let me, let me also say, because people are going to be like, oh, but, you know, when George Floyd died and everyone saw that video and people were so shocked and blah, 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 things did change. Okay, yes, there were some policy changes, but Code Switch on NPR, they recently did a survey and they have found that support for Black Lives Matter and racial justice is actually lower now than it was before 
the protests and the uprisings. So, right. and th- and didn't the policy change involve passing laws for things that were already <laughs> um, on the books? And didn't it also involve giving more money to the police? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Moving on. But uh, yes, um, going back <laughs> to on. the damned geography and its projection onto the people. As many of you know, you know, my family is Jamaican and like many Caribbean countries, there is a lot of anti-Haitian sentiment. And that was actually the the subject of my master's research that I did in Martinique. And so people Mm. often see these natural disasters, natural weather events, um, you know, which are in quotation marks because what the extent to which weather events are a catastrophe is kind of, you know, that's determined by politics and history. And you can learn more about that in our episode, The World is Besugan Fuego. But anyways, all of that, the natural disasters, the political instability, there's this idea that it is divine punishment for their religious practices, particularly Vodou. I've heard family members say that Haitians are cursed. And Mm -hmm. I think that that that's a discourse that resonates throughout the islands and beyond. But as Terry Lindor tweeted, Haiti isn't cursed, it's targeted. Mm. There's also, in terms of the natural disasters, because I know people love like these divine <laughs> these divine intervention kind of explanations, but there's a whole asphalt line running through the country, okay? There's that. But like just off the top of my head, just off the top of my head, Haiti took its independence in 1804 through revolution, and then France was like, you owe us 150 million francs, which is about 30, almost 40 billion dollars in today's money, I think. Oh, my God. Okay. They were like, pay for your freedom or face a blockade. They didn't finish paying it off until the 1940s. Who collected a lot of that money? The U.S. I think the U.S. actually bought the debt, Citibank specifically, bought the debt. And so they collected tons of money, both in the fees and in interest. On top of like, what did I say? The when they took when they took over the gold reserves and when Napoleon like sold most of America to America, they like all of this stuff. Pretty sure France gave the U.S. money for the revolution, which was coming from the wealth of Haitian mm. uh, Haitian labor and enslavement. But anyways. Um, Throughout the 20th century, the U.S. has conducted a variety of operations to destabilize Haiti. I mean, one one that I can think of is they flooded the country with rice in the 90s, right? It was like through, it was one of their humanitarian things. But that crop was something that was already produced by Haitian farmers. So it undercut the farmers and basically destroyed the market and that Mm. that agricultural um, commodity production. And then, of course, you know... Let's not forget that they trained a whole ass military that overthrew a democratically elected president, who was John Bertrand Aristide, and then sent him into exile. So, you know, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Now, Joe Biden, you know, he's been accepting Central American refugees. And uh, I, I can't remember her real name, but Linizi, she does the parking lot pimpin' episodes. You know, she was talking about how, like, <laughs> the, the people from Afghanistan, just, like, letting them into the country is enough to assuage their white guilt. So, 
you know, that's fine. They're good enough to enter, right? So they've been mm. taking all of these people in, but deporting Haitians using some law, right? And so all of this then led the U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti to resign from his post. He said it was, quote, unquote, inhumane, even though Joe Biden himself campaigned on, quote, humane migration and migrant policies. So let me refer again to Plantation Futures. Quote, life then is extracted from particular regions, transforming some places into inhuman geographies. And in what you just told us, um, (laughs) right, it seems like Haiti is instrumental into the making of the modern world in more than one way. A hundred percent. Right, but... uh, 100,000 million percent. Um, And not to dig at anybody, but y'all really thought that Biden was going to make a difference. Um, (laughs) Anything else I'm going to say will go to my personal, my journal and um, personal group chats. I, (laughs) to quote Haitian American anthropologist Jemima Pierre, um, who was riffing off the late Glenn Ford, Democrats are the more effective evil. Um, Hallelujah. Uh, Funnily enough, um, he said that actually about Barack Obama, who was actually the instigator of a lot of the migration policies that Trump perfected. So the problem is not who is in office, right? The problem is the office and the institution of power in and of itself. So definitely check out her essay entitled Borders, Blackness, and Empire, on the Black Agenda Report. And Pierre writes that these actions of deportation are actually based on anxiety about the Black, right? And is it also a fear of, oh, end quote. She says, end quote. Uh, It is also a fear of the dark and looming specter of Black people flooding across the border, sullying or contaminating the nation. Haitians represent the Blackness of Blackness, the primitive placeholder for the primordial threat to white supremacy. The dehumanizing images of Haitian migrants being whipped by U.S. border agents appears to affirm this perception of blackness, end quote. And Scenes of Subjection lays it out for us. Um, And not necessarily clearly, but once you really get in there and read it, (laughs) you see, right? Like, um, it, it is a very dense text is what I mean by that, right? Slavery and its violences had a libidinal, pleasurable effect for white people. And I think so many of us don't want to truly believe that slave owners enjoyed holding slaves because then the violence of subjection, it would make less sense to comply, I think, with how we live today if we really held on to the violence of subjection. And I think many folks like want to call it fear, right? They want to say, oh, black people were enslaved because of fear. Colonizers feared us, right? Or our ancestors. But I don't believe that. I think fear is a component, but actually exacting anti-black violence soothes the psyches of those who are in power, Right. And I'm not just talking about extreme physical violence, like what we talked about today, which is whipping people at the border. Right. These small things like calling us niggers in your head or (laughs) to your friends or wherever, singing Mm -hmm. along with the Mm -hmm. rap music. Right. Sabotaging black people in the workplace, which happens often. Pushing a black child to the ground in daycare, which I saw 
a video of that. I don't know if you saw that circulating. No. Was it was it an adult um, who did it? Oh. An adult, yes. Um, the child came in and the adult immediately pushed the child to the ground. Um, the child was no more than three years old. Um, calling on your black roommate when you have an emotional issue, when y'all don't have a real friendship. Right? are all scenes of subjection that are part of the calculus of the unimaginable horror of slavery. And all of these acts have pleasurable payoffs for those that engage in them while the rest of us right, are left drained, damaged, and or dead. I mean, in the end, all of those things are exercises of power. Mm-hmm. But I think Jemima Pierre's essay, it's a really good one. You know, she raises a lot of really good questions. You know, like, are these black migrants even Haitian? Right? I mean, there are a ton of mm. black people in Central and South America. There are people coming from different countries in Africa. But it's Haitians who are the most blackened, right? So when she talks about them being, you know, the scariest threat, the primordial threat to white supremacy, mm-hmm. right? They are the, the only, the first independent black country that took their, I mean, in, uh, I should say, in the New World, that basically took their freedom through revolution. So that is like, that was one of the biggest losses in that time period. And so that is one of the things that like stokes that fire of fear. And so mm-hmm. this is not, this is not just a perception in the U.S. either, this idea of like the black and Haitian, right? During my research, when I asked people, you know, how do you know if someone is Haitian? Because people would be like, oh yeah, I can easily, you know, Martinicans would be like, oh yeah, I always recognize when someone is Haitian. So I'd ask them how. And they almost always said that they have dark skin. They have darker skin. Mm-hmm. There were some other things that were very interesting, but I mean, this is one of, one of the things. And so mind you, Martinique is in the Caribbean, okay? There are black people here of all complexions. So that view of the black and Haitian is, is widespread. And so her closing question is the question that needs an answer 2021. <laughs> Where is our anger toward the ongoing white supremacist U.S. colonial project in Haiti. We're always so focused on the one thing, the whip, the body of a Syrian toddler on a beach, the mask, wearing masks. You know, we lose sight of the larger issue and the context. And so nothing ever really changes in the long run. Hmm. Period. Point blank. <laughs> Point blank. Pow, pow. Oh, that, our, our horns. One day I'll add those to there the... <laughs> To the repertoire. <laughs> we did we did briefly want to talk about the missing white woman syndrome and the situation with Gabby Petito, you know, and it relates to this phenomenon where missing white the the this missing white woman she becomes national news. I remember probably one of the earliest. Um, I'm aging myself here, but one of the earliest major national news stories that I remember, or I should say, not even national, international, because I was in Canada was uh, the disappearance of John Benet Ramsey. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> I'm aging yeah. myself here. But that's one of the earliest things that I remember. And, you know, in the meantime, there are hundreds of thousands of Black and Indigenous women and girls, trans and cis, that go missing, right, that are missing. Um, hundreds go missing every year. And the only communities that tend to mourn us are our own. And I think... What I wanted to relate that to is what I said earlier, is that there isn't that same level of empathy for us, not right? We'll just leave it there because we're, we're not going to go deeper into that. But 
feel like that would need a whole separate yeah, I think, episode. I think so. So. We were trying to be, we were trying to be um, ambitious with our episode today, but I think that we have done it and we have given you all a lot of information, a lot of text, but as usual, everything will be linked in the episode description and will also be available on the syllabus on our website. So worry not if you weren't able to scribble everything down. But next time, you know, bring a notepad and a pen to this episode. <laughs> Come prepared. Come prepared. Come prepared to learn. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. Well, that is our episode for today. Thank you all so much for listening. This episode was produced by me, Alyssa James, and her, Brendan Times, and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council and donations from listeners just like you. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> oh, oh, that was good. Was it? I have no oh. voice. <laughs> you. I like that. Um, thank you all for your support. If you like this episode, please share with your friends, your family, your frenemies. Again, tell Susie. She might learn something. Um, <laughs> we would love to hear what you have to say about this episode. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. And for transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or donate, visit our website, Zora'sDaughters.com. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And if you've assigned one of our podcast episodes to your classes or in a workshop, Please just send us the syllabus. It helps us show our impact, helps us get more grants so we can keep doing this dope work. Appreciate y'all. Be kind to yourselves. Bye. Bye. We can't talk about the plantation without talking about... <laughs> the weed whacker. <laughs> All right. So we can't... <laughs> The weed whacker really came. So we can't really talk about the plantation.